Well, good morning. Uh, one of the things that to me lends credibility to the truthfulness of the stories in the Bible is that its heroes, its main characters are so flawed. They're, they're just so human. Over the years, I've read a lot of biographies and sometimes when I've been done with a biography, I've concluded that can't be the real story. They didn't include enough things that demonstrated to me that this was a real human. They, they, they weren't perfect, but the biography kind of implied they were, and I knew there just has to be more to this story, that this isn't, this isn't a real accurate picture of what this person was like because all of us blow it. Well, the Bible is filled with broken people. It's filled with people that make mistakes in a variety of different ways. And oftentimes, though, they end up doing well. Their, their life rebounds, and that's one of the encouraging things about it. But you consider some of the heroes of the faith. I mean, we, if you're looking for failure, you don't have to go any further than Adam and Eve. Of course, they ruined it for all of us. You had one job. <laughs> don't eat from the tree. And it ruined it for all of us, but, you know, unless we'd be too hard on them, if it had been you, it would have been you too, I'm convinced, and, and me. Abraham, of course, is the father of our faith, but uh, he blew it on several occasions in the arena of faith. He didn't trust God. So twice, he almost gave his wife away. He said, oh, it's my sister. And that's Abraham, the father of our faith. Moses was someone who murdered somebody and then when we're first introduced to him, he wasn't much of a leader. He was trying to do everything he could to get out of having to lead the Israelites out of Egypt. And yet God had plans for him. And others like Jonah the prophet, God said, go over here. He jumped on a boat going exactly the opposite direction. And yet God used him. He preached a message that reached an entire city. I think of someone even like Sarah. Sarah was told by God, you're going to have a child. She was going to be 90 when it happened. She laughed. Now, that wouldn't have been so bad, except then God said, why did you laugh? And she said, I didn't laugh. And that's when you get in trouble. You know, God says, you did this. No, I didn't. I think he knows. But on and on, the examples, you think of the 12 apostles who walked with Jesus. Jesus was always always talking about areas in which they needed to grow, some of their failures. And then, of course, all of them on the night he was betrayed took off like cowards. I mean, those are, those are foundation people for the church. And yet all of them abandoned him. And, of course, Paul was someone who was a murderer before God used him to plant churches and, and write much of the New Testament scripture. So these are real people. These are broken people. And again, it, it encourages me for a number of reasons. One is it demonstrates to me that the Bible is true. Second, I find I can learn from their example because it's easier to learn from people that are broken than everyone that has it all together. You know, there's some people you think in the Bible, well, that's, that person is a saint and they're not like I am. No, they're exactly like you are. And therefore, we can learn lessons from their stories. But third, most of the people we're going to be talking about ended well. And it does demonstrate to me that even though we blow it big time, there's hope. And that's what I think we'll see throughout this series. But it does answer questions like, can I get past a major sin? 
in my life? Can, can I get a brand new start? But it also, some of these stories answer the question, are there, are there consequences though beyond the subject of forgiveness? And oftentimes there are as well. What I wanna talk about here today in the example of the person we're gonna look at in a moment is, is something that relates to our thinking about sin when we blow it, and especially in bigger ways. I think some people sometimes with sin in their lives, um, I don't wanna say they take it too hard, but, but I don't think God wants us to be walking around in guilt all the time and thinking we're bad people and whatever else. Through Christ there's forgiveness. And our lives are to be filled with joy and none of us are perfect and God remembers all that. But some of these examples are kind of bigger areas in which people blow it. And we need to change our thinking about, especially the bigger areas. My takeaway today is this, that we need to change the way we think about sin. Now the word sin means to miss the mark. It means to deviate from the path that God has for us. And so sometimes we think of it too much in religious terms, but it just means to miss the mark. But there are ways in which I think we need to stop thinking. That's what we're gonna talk about here today. Now the person I wanna talk about here today is a, a familiar person and actually I talked about him about a year ago. It's the example of David, although my applications are gonna be a little bit different here today. David, when we first were introduced to him was this, the, uh, the youngest son of a man named Jesse. He was the eighth son eighth boy in the family, and um, he was, he's guarding or watching sheep when we first meet him. And I get a, the clear impression that his brothers did not like him. I believe that David was raised in a household similar to Joseph's story in the Old Testament. I don't, I don't think that they liked David. But as a young man, he accomplished some pretty remarkable things. He killed a lion and a bear. I'm impressed. I've killed spiders. You know, I mean, that's kind of a big deal. And then, of course, he killed uh, Goliath and, and brought about a great victory for Israel. He ended up being someone that was arguably Israel's greatest king, most beloved king. And, and he's just a really amazing person. He's described as a man after God's own heart many times in the Old Testament. I think it's a reference to the fact that David had on his heart the things that were on God's heart. That's the kind of guy he was, but he's also known for something else. He took someone else's wife for himself, and then he killed the husband, plus some other people died in the process. What do you do when that happens? Well, we're gonna look at some stories here today, but let's set up the story, the initial story found in 2 Samuel chapters 11 and 12. I wanna begin in verse one. And he is now king of Israel when this happens. In the spring when kings march out to war, David sent Joab with his officers and all Israel. They destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David remained in Jerusalem. One evening, David got up from his bed and strolled around on the roof of the palace. From the roof, he saw a woman bathing, a very beautiful woman. So David sent someone to inquire about her and he reported, this is Bathsheba daughter of Eliam and wife of Uriah the Hittite. David sent messengers to get her, and when she came to him, he slept with her. Now, she had been purifying herself from her uncleanness. Afterwards, she returned home. The woman conceived and sent word to inform David, I am pregnant. Now, let's talk for a moment about this story 
In the springtime, usually after the April, May rains, kings in Bible times went out to battle. It was kind of like clockwork, like who are we gonna fight this year? It's just when kings went out to battle, of course you wanted to begin the battles when the, the ground wasn't so mushy. And kings usually led their, their armies into battle. They didn't send somebody else. David, always up to this point, as far as we knew, led his own army into battle, but he had been in lots of battles. And he had a competent commander named Joab. And so on this occasion, he sent Joab in his stead, and he stayed back in Jerusalem. And one evening, it says he was on the roof of the palace there. And in, in Israel, the roofs are flat. It's almost like an extra room in the house. In fact, they used to even have animals up there and, and other things. And, and David presumably goes up in the early evening to cool off. And it's the palace, so it's the tallest building. And he could see all out, all over the place throughout the city. And he sees this woman bathing and he wonders who she is. Now, he's used to getting everything he wants. But he sent a messenger to find out who she was. And the response is interesting to me. The response was this, that is the daughter of Eliab and the wife of Uriah. Now, I don't know if you've ever stopped to think for a moment why that order. I think the answer should have been, that's Uriah's wife. Oh, by the way, the father is this other guy. But that's not how it's worded. That's the daughter of Eliab is how it should be understood. And... It's also the wife of Uriah. These names are included here because the readers of 2 Samuel would have known who they were. They were very, very famous individuals, both of them. They were elite soldiers in David's army. That's probably why they lived right there by the palace. And Eliab, the father, is mentioned first because he was the greater of the two. There's a list of David's mighty soldiers found Second Samuel there, and this guy's name's on that list. 30 individuals were amazing. There were 30, they were called his mighty men, doing amazing things. I'd put them against anybody, these guys, and one was Eliab, he was, he was amazing. Wonderful soldier, and one of the most honored soldiers in the whole army, and that's her daughter. That's what the guy's saying, that's her daughter, you better not. <laughs> Better leave her alone and then find out it's also Uriah's wife. And, and the thing about Uriah is that many people feel that Uriah was actually the armor bearer for Joab, the commander. It's like the number two guy. These are not nobodies. Now, what should David have done? Well, obviously, oh, she's taken. I can't, I can't do this, I can't do this. I'm amazed sometimes at our capacity to hurt the people that we love when we know, we know certain things and we can do things that could be really, really hurtful and yet we choose our sin anyway, which is what he chose to do. These two guys had laid down their life for David and, and yet he went ahead and did this. I suppose he thought he maybe wouldn't get caught. As soon as he learned who she was, it didn't matter, go send for her and she comes over and they, spend time together, and then a little bit later, she sends word, I'm pregnant. Now this presents a little bit of a problem here because it can't be Uriah's baby because he's not there. 
he's gonna come back and all of a sudden she's gonna start showing and he's gonna realize it's not my baby. And so David did what we all do, every one of us, when we're caught in a sin, we try to hide it. I don't want anyone to know. I gotta do something here to cover up what I've done. And so he recalled Uriah from the battle lines. He said, come into the, come in to my, my table here and, and let's eat. And then he sent Uriah to his house. He said, go spend time with your wife. Enjoy her, enjoy being home. Enjoy something to eat there, whatever. Just enjoy. Well, David finds out the next day that Uriah didn't do it. And he was upset because when the king asks you to do something, it's not a suggestion. Why didn't you go to your wife? And he said, how could I do that? The other soldiers, the people I fought with are out in the field. They're risking their lives. I, I just couldn't do it. Also, in Israel at the time, there was often a rule the, the soldiers were not allowed to be sexually active the night before a battle in case one would do something that was kind of sinful and then it would ruin the fight. And I suspect this was the case. He was saying, I can't do this. I, I can't do this. I'm not gonna go and enjoy my wife while they're all out there in the field. So he didn't do it. So the next night, David came up with another idea. He decided to get Uriah drunk. I think he thought that his inhibitions would be down because Bathsheba was beautiful. And there's no doubt in my mind Uriah wanted to go home. He wanted to go home and you just get him a speck tipsy and maybe he'll say, forget the soldiers out in the field, I'm going home. But it didn't work. So he came up with a third scheme. It's found in 2 Samuel 11:14. The next morning, David wrote a letter to Joab, the commander, and sent it with Uriah. In the letter he wrote, put Uriah at the front of the fiercest fighting, then withdraw from him so that he's struck down and dies. I think the plan was horrendous in and of itself, but to use Uriah to deliver to Joab his own death sentence kind of adds to it. And this is exactly what happened. He was placed in the front of the lines. He was told to get close to the city there's no doubt in my mind, by the way, that Uriah knew what was happening at this point. He was a soldier. Every soldier knew you don't get within the range of the archers unless you have a death wish. And he was sent out there and he was killed as well as some of the other soldiers. And suddenly David is guilty of adultery and murder. Bathsheba was given the news about her husband's death. She mourned for him. And then we read in verse 27 of 2 Samuel 11, when the time of mourning ended, David had her brought to his home. She became his wife and bore him a son. However, the Lord considered what David had done to be evil. Here's the first hint that something's gonna be wrong in the days ahead. That though other people can't see what we do, sometimes God does. And there was gonna be a problem here. Now, God did not immediately approach David. In my calculations, about eight months passed. I think God wanted to give David an opportunity to repent, to, to come and, and before God about it, but David never brought it up with God, never got it right for it seems about eight months, and then God sent a prophet to him to say, I've gotta confront this. And this prophet had a message beginning in verse seven of 2 Samuel 12. 
Nathan said this, this is what the Lord God of Israel says, I anointed you king over Israel and delivered you from the hand of Saul. I gave your master's house to you and your master's wives into your arms. And I gave you the house of Israel and Judah. And if that was not enough, I would have given you even more. That's how the prophet starts. I think we can learn something from that because this is how God often operates. He's so good to us. And if we would stop and reflect on it, the verse that says the kindness of God leads to repentance and something that could help us sometimes is just to reflect on all the ways in which God has been kind to us and he's blessed us. God said to David, do you realize who you are and I gave you this place and this palace and I've blessed you and your wives and, and I've made you the leader over Israel and Judah and over all of this and, and this everything wonderful that you have and if that had been not enough, I would have given you more. I just would have blessed you. In other words, how could you do this when I've been so good to you? We continue, though, with what the prophet said in verse 9. Why then have you despised the command of the Lord by doing what I consider evil? To despise a command of God, by the way, is to just hate it. I don't like the fact God said no to this. Why then have you despised the command of the Lord by doing what I consider evil? You struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and took his wife as your own wife. You murdered him with the Ammonite sword. Now therefore, the sword will never leave your house because you despised me and took the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. This is what the Lord says, I'm going to bring disaster on you from your own family. I will take your wives and give them to another before your very eyes and he will sleep with them publicly. You acted in secret, but I'll do this before all Israel and in broad daylight. David responded to Nathan, I've sinned against the Lord. Then Nathan replied to David, the Lord has taken away your sin and you will not die. However, because you treated the Lord with such contempt in this matter, the son born to you will die. Now there was some good news here and some bad news. The good news was you're not gonna die. That it was the appropriate penalty for what David had done from the Old Testament for both transgressions. He should have died. And this is one of the more encouraging verses in the whole Bible. I have removed your sin, you will not die. I just love that. You will not die, I've removed your sin. But then he went on to say, but there'll be some consequences. And here's where we get to my first takeaway here today. Again, we're talking about how to think about the whole subject. My first takeaway is this. Don't, don't think forgiveness means no consequences. And I think people think that sometimes. That, um, oh, well, God will forgive me. I've had people come up to me before. They were, in a sense, asking permission to do something they knew was wrong. They only wanted to know if I do this, will I go to hell? That's honestly what they wanted to know. Will God forgive me of this? Because I want to do it. I mean, they're telling me this. And I said, well, um, there's forgiveness through Christ, but there may be some consequences. And I'm reminded of David. Where God said, now, because of what you've done, the sword will never leave your house. It means that you're always going to have to be worried about your, your family and your life. You're going to be chased. And someone is going to take your wives and defile them. And the baby, the baby's going to die. Now, let me mention something about this. I think sometimes um, we maybe look at this penalty and think that's really extreme. 
David was um, the leader of Israel. I think what God did in David's situation is not what he always does with us. He represented the nation of Israel. He represented God before the entire world. And so I think there were great consequences for what he did. And I say that because sometimes I think when something bad happens to us, we immediately think God is punishing me for sin. I don't think it works that way. In fact, some of you might struggle with this statement, but I don't think God ever punishes a Christian. Because Jesus took your punishment. He doesn't punish Christians. He does discipline us, though, like, like, a, like a training. He does have a way of getting us on the right path. He does have a way of causing things in our lives. But uh, on one sense, I just want to say, you know, if something like this third thing here, it says your baby's going to die. Well, if, if you lost a baby, that's not the punishment of God. I don't believe it all. And I think sometimes we look at these stories and then we get concerned. At the same time, oftentimes there are consequences for the things we do wrong. One of the consequences that wasn't mentioned here at this point of the story is the fact that he gave the nations the ability to blaspheme God over what he did. The world was gonna be talking about this. Did you hear what the king of Yahweh that serves Yahweh, the God of Israel, did? It would lead to blasphemy, but the other thing that was gonna happen is I think until he got things right with God, there was no fellowship with God. He went to all these public events like he had to do at least three times a year in Israel, and he had to put on a face like God and me are okay, but they were not okay. And he later wrote about this, and many feel Psalm 32 is where he's talking about it. In verse three and four, David wrote, when I kept silent, my bones became brittle from my groaning all day long for day and night. Your hand was heavy on me. My strength was drained as in the summer's heat. He was in a spiritually barren place and he did not have to endure it that long, but he did. I think for months and months and months, he had this thing that was between him and God that had not yet been resolved. Now, what's encouraging to me about this story is that God pursued David and that's what I think he does with us too. He comes after us, he runs after us. He loves a relationship with us. But don't think forgiveness means no consequences because sometimes there are. Second, don't think you're above committing certain sins. When I think about David here, he was a remarkable person, a man after God's heart. He, God chose him of, of all his brothers because God saw what was, on, what was on the inside of him and he loved God in the Psalms. He worshiped God and he, he just, he just what you wanna be like, David. And then this happened. And you say, wow, if he can do it, any of us can do it. Don't be so proud as to think you can't. And I've known people over the years that really jumped on someone who, for committing a particular sin. Jumped all over him. I can't believe you did this. You're just such a lousy Christian and this and that. And then they committed the exact same sin, coming in my office crying. Like I, I thought I, I was beyond committing such a sin there's no sin that's beyond you committing it if the circumstances are right. In 1 Corinthians 10, 12, and 13, Paul wrote, so whoever thinks he stands must be careful not to fall. Other versions say, take heed lest you fall. The moment you think, I got this, you don't. 
Goes on to say, no temptation has overtaken you except what is common to humanity, all of us. God is faithful. He will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you're able, but with the temptation, he'll also provide a way of escape so that you will be able to bear it. And so you look for the door that God gives you in the midst of the temptation. Lord, I'm being tempted here. What's the way of escape? We look for that, but all of us are tempted in the same ways. And whatever sins you think someone else has done, and they've committed those sins, you've thought about it in your heart. We're all, we're all guilty in this sense, so be really careful about this because if you're self-righteous, you're proud, and pride comes before a fall. So don't think forgiveness means no consequences. Don't think you're above it, and, and the final point is don't think that you can't end well if you've failed big time. The God can redeem that. This is an interesting story in the sense that David represents a Christian who sinned after he was a Christian. Moses killed somebody, but it was before he knew God. So you kind of say, well, that was before you knew God, but David knew God. And you wonder, how is his life going to end? I think it ended quite well. His fellowship with God was restored. He enjoyed fellowship with God afterwards. The second child that was born to Bathsheba ended up being the next king of Israel, which is amazing because David had some other sons who were older. They should have had the claim to the throne, but God chose Solomon. I want the, the second child. It shows to me that God said the past is the past. And he blessed her and blessed him. Third, David is the one who set in the motion of the, the building of the new temple maybe the greatest temple ever built. He got the plans together. He gathered it all together to worship and serve God. Fourth, David became the king to whom other kings in Israel were compared time and time again, if you read the Old Testament. They'll say, so-and-so was a, a great king, but not like David. You know, this, this one loved God, but not like David did. This person was devoted, but not like David was. I mean, even the end of his life, and to me, the most compelling thing is that one day Jesus is going to reign on what is called the throne of David. Forever he's associating with that guy. The throne of David, oh, I don't want the throne to be called the throne of David anymore. You blew it. I need, a, I need something that's more honorable. No. It shows the forgiveness of God. So let me summarize where we're at and then walk away with a couple takeaways. We need to change the way we think about sin. Don't think that forgiveness, you, through Christ, I think we're forgiven of our sin, but don't think it means no consequences. Don't think you're above committing certain sins or you're in a very vulnerable place and don't think it can't end well if you've blown it as you're sitting here today. What should you do about it though? Well, one is if you do do something that you know isn't right, confess it and, and claim your forgiveness. Get right with God. I love David's response in this story. It says in 2 Samuel 12, 13, David responded to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. Quite simply, no excuses. You don't know what it's like. There's nothing there. He just said, I've sinned against the Lord when he was confronted with it. He was so different than the previous king, King Saul, who when God confronted him, he made all kinds of denials, first of all. I didn't sin. And then when he couldn't weasel out of that. Then he said, well, the reason I sinned, and he gave some excuses and all these reasons. God said, no, you've blown it. 
But he responded well, and in 1 John 1, 9, we read, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And when we acknowledge things before God, it gets our relationship with him restored. A second application is if, if you sin, don't use failure as an excuse to continue. Continue moving down that path. Sometimes we think I've blown it already, so I might as well continue. And you end up doing something even worse. Well, I'm already, I've already messed up, you know. What, what difference does it make anymore? Don't submit yourself to that thinking. It's not the right way to think about it. Things could stop and turn in a moment. And so don't, I think of the woman that was caught in adultery. Jesus said, just go and sin no more. He said that to some other people too. Don't do any more unless something else happens. And so we just stop where we are. And finally, if you sin, run toward Jesus and not away from him. Run toward Christ. And this one, I think, again, I think our thinking is wrong on this because we think when we sin, God moves away. He does not. In 1 John 2, 1 and 2, we read, my little children, I'm writing you these things so that you may not sin, but if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He himself is the propitiation for our sins. Propitiation is a big word that just means he took the wrath of God against sin. That's what propitiation is, to pay this horrible price to satisfy the wrath of God. And he himself became that for us so that the wrath of God has been removed from you. So John writes, don't sin, but if you do, if you happen to, you've got an advocate. The word advocate there can be translated defense attorney. You've got someone that comes up and says, I died for that one. Satan comes along and, of course, accuses you, you horrible, sinful person. Jesus stands on the other side of you as a defense attorney and says, I got this. I paid for this. This person's forgiven. This person is a child of God. The word advocate literally means one called alongside. When you sin, he actually comes closer. It's essential we understand this. Because what I think the devil wants more than anything else is to come between you and Jesus. And if in your mind you're thinking, I blew it and Jesus doesn't love me anymore or I can't find forgiveness, there's gonna be a gap there. And again, I think you'll continue in the wrong way. We need to walk in step with Jesus to get victory over the things we face. We need that relationship. This indicates to me he comes closer when you blow it. He doesn't move further away because he says, connect with me, let's get back on the right path. Let's continue in the way we should go. Last thing I want to mention this morning is that some of you perhaps here today have never come to a point where you know for sure where you stand with God. You don't know if your sins are forgiven. And, and so after the service, if you'd like to talk with someone, there'll be some people up front here or else at the next step table. They'd love to explain to you how to begin a relationship with God, how to make sure that your sins have indeed been taken care of through Christ. Let's pray. Father, I'm grateful for the uh, stories that you've given us in your word, stories of people that blew it in many different ways because they're like we are. And Lord, I just ask you that you give us grace as we just uh, work through this whole subject in our own hearts and minds. We thank you, Lord, how you do love us. Thank you that you've paid the price on the cross for every sin that we could commit and through faith in you that we have eternal life and forgiveness and that we could get back up and 
As you say in the Old Testament, a righteous person falls seven times but it gets right back up again. That's what we wanna do. Thank you, in Jesus' name, amen.